This episode has been brought to you in part by the Azrieli Music Prizes. Join them in celebrating artistic excellence at the AMP Gala Concert, live from Maison Symphonique in Montreal, happening October 20th at 7.30 p.m. Eastern. Orchestre Metropolitain will premiere award-winning music by laureates Aharon Harla, Iman Habibi, and Rita Ueda. Learn more at azrielifoundation.org backslash AMP. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Menschwarmers, your bi-weekly-ish look at the world of Jews and sports. Uh, you know, we've been taking a sort of relaxed summer schedule, I would say, in uh, in the dog days of summer, or post-dog days, dogish days of summer. Yeah, we we saw that the high holidays were coming up. We needed to gear up for lots of fall sports content for you people and and the ongoing shtetl talk that you love so much. What do you mean by what do you mean by you people? <laughs> <laughs> both, I'm just both, kidding. Obviously, only Jews listen to this podcast. Both James <laughs> no and our, our producer Mike uh, both had the same reaction to my comment of you people. I didn't even mean Jews. I meant uh, yeah. uh, uh, you listeners, you listeners, you people who are presumably listening to our show. Gabe, Gabe, how you doing, buddy? Uh, what's going on in your life aside from stockpiling uh, Western cream cheese uh, I, just in I'm, case of in case of emergency? I'm doing good. You know, I'm not too broken up about the Western cream cheese. Uh, uh, breakdown. I know you think that's crazy talk, but I, you know, it was a little foamy. It's a little busy for a cream cheese for me. Really? Yeah, it's wow. a little busy. You like a dense, you want a denser cream cheese? I want a denser cream cheese. I want one that where I'm not worried. I want the locks to be like stuck onto it. Like I feel like if you were to hold a piece of, of mm. a bagel with cream cheese and locks upside down, the locks would fall off the Western. I want that cream cheese on like cement. I see. Well, fair enough. It's possible. I, I I think I've mentioned this before. I'm a vegetarian, so I'm not a lox eater. So it's possible that as a non-lox eater, I, I don't really know what cream cheese goes best with it or like what, what you need. My my cream cheese is there for cream cheese purposes, not just as lo- lox adhesive. Do you think that, that anti-Semites call us lox eaters? <laughs> I think if they knew what lox was. Well, I guess they probably do. <laughs> That is a good slur, though. Not not yeah. enough um, not enough racial slurs about like people eating. I, I really I think potato eater is the only thing, and that sounds like like I, I'm sure the origins of it are like like date back to like the potato blight and like terrible things like that. But like if someone was like you're a potato eater, I'd be like you are accurate. Like that is correct. And, right. Uh, you I know, think I'm not I'm not offended. I think there's like outgroup ones, right? Like yeah. I've been called a manja cake before. And like yeah, that's, but that's not exactly. That just means like a white person. Yeah, it's how know. Italians refer to the decadent West. You know, eat, yeah. or where I guess the French and the English which we are not part of. Yeah, which we are not part of. We are definitely, <laughs> definitely not part of the decadent West. Uh, I we say all from right, our, good, our good podcast microphones. Good intro. Good intro. <laughs> <laughs> good intro. Good nosh talk to start off the pod. <laughs> Um, let's, let's dive right into some sports talk. Should mention, uh, off the top that we have a really, uh, great interview coming up with Alan Leibel. Uh, Alan is a multiple time Olympian and he was an Olympian at the 1972 Munich games, uh, where a number of Israeli athletes and coaches, uh, were killed by terrorists. That's part of what we wanted to have him on for. And also talk about his career in sailing and his uh, experience at the Olympics. So stay tuned for that. It's a very interesting interview. And uh, 
finally finally a chance for me to to talk to another lawyer on the podcast instead of uh Old, old, old one undergraduate degree Gabe here. <laughs> That's right. I'm, I'm a one degree man. You know, we've, yeah. we don't often, we haven't talked about sailing uh, on the show, I guess, ever, um, you know, historically or, or otherwise. But, you know, there's a, a great history of sailing in Israel. Israel's first medalist, Gal Fridman. Um, who I think we talked about a couple of, a couple of years ago in an Olympics episode, um, won uh, Israel's first gold and I think Israel's first medal overall at any Olympics, both right. sailing. So there is sort of a history of Jewish sailing. If you were a Jewish camp kid, you probably participated in some sailing too. Um, but Alan was on the Canadian national team as a Jewish athlete um, and has a lot of interesting perspective to share about the 1972 Olympics and the tragedies yeah. that occurred there. Um, it, it's interesting we haven't talked about sailing. I mean, I don't really have much personal connection to it. Uh, you know, sailed, you know, little lasers at camp or whatever. It doesn't really count. But, you know, I think Toronto has a very uh, interesting and definitely not necessarily unique, but uh, interesting history with Jews and sailing and the Island Yacht Club that sort of grew as a place for Jews to sail uh, when they weren't allowed yep. at, at some of the other uh, yachting clubs in the city. And, you know, I think it's similar to other... Um, sports that signified wealth let's say of, of the of, of a early early 20th century or mid 20th century area you know golf tennis uh other things like like that polo i suppose where it's like well you don't want to have us in your club we're going to start our own and then you know one day uh be the only people with money who are still interested in doing this and, and, and elephant uh, polo you'll have you'll whatever. have to merge with that you'll have to merge with the jewish club to, to stay and- uh, stay afloat Interesting, though, when you talk about the history and Jews, Jews and sailing, this isn't necessarily the point of our podcast, and I'm happy to guest on any podcast that would be willing to have me to talk about this, but there's a long history of, like, swashbuckling Jewish piracy. Um, Is there? Yeah, when Jews were, exp- after, like, the Spanish Inquisition mm. and, and, you know, expulsion from uh, Portugal, uh, a lot of Jew- Jewish families moved to sort of South America and the Caribbean and became, like, seafaring, rum-drinking pirates. Wow, um, that's very know, cool. Yeah, lots of Caribbean, like a lot of the Caribbean Jews and South American Jews now, I think, are descendants of of huh. post Spanish Inquisition uh, Jewish swashbucklers. Um, well, it's but, definitely a, a rich area of history for us to explore another time. I would love to hear someone tell me about uh, the history of Jewish pirates. Yeah, uh, I, I guess it would be Redbeard, Redbeard, <laughs> black hair. Is that is yeah. that the name of the name of the Jewish pirate? But speaking of non, uh, you know, of non-Jewish, we're excited to bring you on an interview with Alan and, and talk about his experience. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, any exciting news in your world of Jewish sports that you want to talk about this week, James? Well, I wanted to say we got some great feedback on our last episode and your interview with Lawrence Applebaum from Golf Canada. Um, there are a few golf stories I, I just wanted to mention. Um, last week was the FedEx Cup Finals, the end of the uh, the PGA Tour season at uh, Eastlake Golf and Country Club, I think. Yes. Um, Eastlake, for sure. I'm just not sure yeah, if it's East, golf. Eastlake. East yes. Yeah. A very nice club. And uh, Max Homa ended up in fifth place uh, overall, which is great for him. A huge finish for him uh, towards the end of the year. And, uh, you know, a way to really take home a big check in the FedEx Cup because that really pays out. You know, I don't I, I don't know if, like, what what did Rory get for winning? Like 11 million or something like that? 18 million. L'chaim. 18 million. L'chaim. L'chaim to, Lori, to, to yeah. Rory. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. L'chaim on this. Yeah, so it was a $75 million prize pool. Max Homa came in fifth and uh, and and took home $2.75 million. It's quite for, a, for quite, that's so a that's lot a huge, of uh, Samoans. Such a haul. Like, jeez. Like, 
I know, I know it's all seems sort of like funny money when you get up there and like what the prizes are, but like a lot of these golfers are just like, you know, sort of scratching out a living, trying to try trying to make it through the, the year and like sustain multiple years. You have injuries, you know, there's no, there's not necessarily like a big like contract behind you the way you have in other sports that like keeps you afloat. So 2.75 million. That's great. Good for Max. Yeah, that's, um, that's, it's very, very proud for a proud of him. A lot of knockouts after a real breakout year for him. Um, yeah. so and, and, really, and, really and pride and, and pride as well. I think as Jews that he hasn't, uh, you know, taken the money to join the, the Saudi the live tour. Yeah, he hasn't gone uh, full bill Goldberg. And, will you be and, watching? Will you be watching live golf? You think come September? No. I have yeah, no, I don't think so. I have no I interest care. in, in seeing really any of them. Like, so, you know, so just I while we're on Charles Schwartzel battle, Louis Oosthuizen, I would yeah. watch like the, you know, European tour and I don't really watch that. Yeah. I don't watch that either. So I just, just briefly on the subject of money in golf. I, I, I read that the money that they've reported there, that they're paying these players to join the tour is an advance against future earnings and they'll have right. to pay it back on that basis. That is ludicrous. The moral what? hazard that goes into that, because what is stopping someone from one? Okay, one. What's what's causing them to be competitive? Like this is totally totally ludicrous. If if they're getting paid regardless, like if they're not making any money from winning, what's causing yeah. them to want to win the tournament? And then what's stopping them from colluding with someone who isn't getting paid as much, hasn't already gotten in advance to have them win and and take the money home? This is yeah. this is such a farce that this is considered a is not a competitive sport. It's nonsense. Absolutely. There's a, there's an, it's, there is no incentive to win. Um, yeah. other than I guess additional, well, not even additional, additional per, per possibility of an additional prize contract. Um, right. and I guess the potential, right? Like for, for your mid tier guys, you know, I guess for everybody, it's more money than you'd likely to make on the PGA tour, but it's not, it's, it's a very different, I guess, opportunity to play something that still doesn't really feel like a golf tournament. Um, fifty-four yeah. hall shotgun very starts weird. for for money all, you already all have. So weird. It's it's so, very 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 bizarre. Gabe, you, you you talked to Lawrence last week on the eve of the uh, Canadian Open uh, for women's golf. How did did any were any Jews participating? How did Jews yeah, fare at we, that? We have three Jewish stories. Um, the first one uh, we've talked about her uh, a couple of times. Um, her name is Elizabeth Sokol. She uh, last week, unfortunately, uh, uh, she actually came in in thirty sixth. Sorry, I got confused. She shot seven under for the tournament, um, three under on her last day, and uh, and did quite well. Thirty six, I think it's one of her better finishes of the season. Hey, not bad. Uh, yeah. Totally not bad. Um, they're also uh, who didn't make the cut. Who I, I got confused. Um, golfer uh, Dana Finkelstein. Um, okay. Who was also another Jewish golfer, but an interesting Toronto story. Um, mm-hmm. Maple Downs uh, member and high school student Lauren Zaretsky who's the women's amateur national champion of this year, young Jewish girl, um, made the cut and was the top Canadian amateur in the field. So wow, good for her. Big mazel tov to Lauren. Um, and a big thank you to the guy I met on a golf course last weekend who gave me the tip to her story. Um, another Maple Downs member. But uh, we'd l- Lauren, if you or any of your family are listening, we'd love to have you on the show, talk about your golf life, and uh, wish you luck heading to Texas Tech, I guess, in the next couple of weeks. Um, congratulations! So that's big congratulations, big Mazel Tov, and, and I'm sure it's the first of many high finishes at various LPGA Tour events. So pretty right. exciting. We got another MOT on tour, or who looks like she's going to be on tour, and we, we'd uh, love to talk to you more. Yeah, good for her. I'm sure we'll continue following her career as she goes through uh, her NCAA career at Texas Tech, and hopefully joining the LPGA uh, sh- thereafter. 
Absolutely. A lot of good uh, uh, Jewish stories. A lot of good Jewish stories in the in the LPGA Tour, I guess. Um, yeah. Finally, we know that uh, uh, Morgan Pressel, the commentator, was there at the tournament the whole time. Um, she was hanging around Toronto, playing golf, meeting people, I think doing somewhat of a Jewish media tour. Um, we didn't get her on the show this time, but maybe next year, Morgan, will we'll have you on our LPGA special. Sure. Uh, switching over to tennis, we, we there's obviously some Jewish athletes still live at the U.S. Open that's going on right now. Uh, but I saw that uh, Camilla Georgie lost in the second round uh, earlier today, unfortunately. Uh, you know, she's had a sort of up and down last year. Obviously, winning the Canadian Open was big, but hasn't quite hit that height uh, since then. So, you know, Diego Schwartzman uh, is on to the second round. Uh, Denis Shapovalov is off to the second round. Uh, I think Taylor Fritz as well. Um, no, uh, uh, Taylor the, the Fritz is in the first round. Oh, upset Taylor in the first round. You're right. Wow. Yeah, it was a, it was the top-ranked American. Quite a loss. Big, big, big loss by uh, yeah. somebody whose name is B. Holt. Brandon Holt. Brandon Holt. Brandon Holt. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, and Gabe, it, it being, uh, you know, just coming up on Labor Day weekend, I thought it would be good to do a little uh, football preview for the upcoming uh, football season. Um, starting with the junior ranks, the only uh, really notable Jewish player that I want to talk about is – uh, now West Virginia University uh, Mountaineers quarterback JT Daniels. JT who, Daniels. Uh, you know, first of all, great name. 10 out of 10 QB name. JT yeah. is just great. You, uh, uh, you don't think about a lot of uh, uh, JTs being Jewish, especially if, yeah. unless their names were like like Jacob Tevya. <laughs> yeah, so half Jewish. Uh, his mom is Jewish. His, his dad is not, but I think he was raised with. Uh, within the faith to a certain certain degree. He had mm-hmm. been at Georgia uh, previously, but was sort of um, blocked, you know, from starting as the... In, the uh, in the national championship year. Well, he, yeah, he, he was on the team, but um, he uh, he was behind Stetson Bennett, who was their sort of surprise starter. N- not, and, Jewish. Uh, left, not, not Jewish. Not Jewish at all. <laughs> but left during the transfer portal and uh, transferred to West Virginia. Um, yeah. He is... Apparently not the only Jew in West Virginia, because I saw an article on on Forward about uh, a, a, a rabbi in West Virginia. So he is not the only Jew in West Virginia, <laughs> but he is one of one of few. Yes, um, I've been to Morgantown, where, where West Virginia University is. So I've been there. It is not a very Jewish place. And he, so JT Daniels is a huge recruit. He is going to, uh, you know, have an uphill battle playing for a team that's, you know, expected to be competitive, but not necessarily a, a top team. Um, he sort of bounced around and, and hasn't necessarily uh, shown what he can do in terms of uh, his football prowess. You know, as I said, top recruit, but sort of blocked at Georgia by another quarterback. He had injuries as well. Uh, so this is going to be his, you know, big year uh, to prove himself and prove that he could be an NFL caliber quarterback. He, uh, you know, is going to be in tough right off the bat. They have Pittsburgh. Uh, they're playing Pitt on Thursday night. Um, is, it the, is it the opening game August of the season? 1st. Yeah, I mean, there have been a few games, but this is like, the open, you know, this is like the big kickoff week. Uh, yeah. So we wish him luck. I mean, I think he's someone we're going to follow. Uh, the he has forty to one odds to win the Heisman, which is not bad. <laughs> you know, he's definitely like a dark horse candidate for that. But he again, like he he's a guy who's a real recruit. He hasn't really had a chance to prove himself uh, the last few years. But we're going to see what he can do. Deal. Exactly, expected to be a big deal. Um, I think he absolutely can be, and we'll we'll see. We'll have to see what happens. Continue uh, following his career. And, and if so, they can upset Pitt, that would be a huge start for his season. And and moving on to sort of, I guess, professional football from college. I'm sure we'll find about other college stories throughout the season. Yeah. Um, we lost a good one in uh, uh, the retirement of, uh, you know, uh, uh, the retirement of Super Bowl winning tackle Mitch Schwartz. 
Yeah, there. So I wanted to talk about that. There's is it hasn't been a great off season for Jews uh, in NFL. So as you said, Mitch Schwartz retired. Uh, I don't think he had been on the roster last year necessarily, but he he won a Super Bowl with uh, with the Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, mm-hmm. Ali Marpet also retired. Uh, yep. Tackle for Tampa Bay, who uh, you know was on the team last year and uh, was part of their Super Bowl winning team back in 2020. Uh, back in 2021, the 2020 season, the the, the Tom Brady year. Yeah. Um, so yes. those two guys retired, and you know, not not saying that's bad. You know, wish him well. Obviously, uh, you know, M- Mitchell Schwartz for sure is is going to have a career in media. Uh, you know, his brother Jeff does a lot, uh, a lot of media stuff as well. Big presence on Twitter. Um, and uh, you know, Ali Marpet I think has a, a you know real career ahead of him. But in other news, I want to talk about two other active players. Uh, Josh Rosen, the quarterback, uh, formerly of the uh, Arizona uh, Cardinals, formerly of the Miami Dolphins, then then signed with Cleveland Browns this offseason. Uh, he was just released the other day. <laughs> so, and you now know, he has just been the, kicked around. He has not had a shot. I mean, getting released by the Browns is probably the lowest it gets. Um, even though <laughs> their star quarterback is, is suspended for the first ten games of the season, yes, uh, this, is, so, this is now the sixth franchise that has passed that has moved on him. So we'll see. We'll see if he gets picked up somewhere to be a backup. Uh, but the you know it might be getting late early, uh, as they say for Josh Rosen, chosen yes. Rosen. And uh, I don't know. It's tough. Football's tough. There's only so many spots. You know, there's new guys coming in. I would love to see him get a chance somewhere. Yeah, uh, I think he was not, you know, he wasn't bad in the opportunities that he had last no, year. Yeah, I mean, um, even his first Arizona season was not. No, it wasn't terrible. Yeah. Um, it wasn't good, but it wasn't. It was, you know, a, a middling rookie season season. Yeah. So he didn't really get much of a chance last year in Atlanta. But when he was in Miami, you know, he was not terrible. Like for, for a young guy, he wasn't good, but he wasn't the worst player ever. So. I think with a chance, this guy could still maybe be something. Who knows? There's so few chances. You know, he was a high draft pick for a reason, 10th overall. Um, Absolutely. And the other the other cut that I think was more of a shock to a lot of people was that tight end Anthony Ferkser, uh, yeah. who signed this last offseason with the Falcons, was cut from their roster as well. So that's also an odd one. Yesterday. Um, I didn't really yeah. see any good explanation for that. I think he's going to get picked up somewhere. He, yes, you know, he's, a, I, he's a quality blocking tight end. He's a quality player who's also a Harvard grad um, and has had a couple of good seasons on a couple of good teams. Like I, I you know, he, he's been, he was drafted, I think, by the Jets um, or first started his career with the Jets and then played a little bit on Kansas City and then had four years with t- Tennessee, including a couple of playoff appearances. Um, I think he's, you know, expected to find another job. I would, I would expect so too. Um, like, you know, there's, there's always going to be a job for an athletic tight end who went to Harvard. seems like a place right. where, where, you know, you would want a smart player. Um, it's a shame, but we still have a couple of Jews, uh, left in the league. A couple yeah. specifically. Um, let's, so let's one, talk about Greg Joseph, my, my dude. Uh, yeah, Greg Joseph, I, I, I think, you know, should. <laughs> He's South African. That's what I was doing. Anything, anything that gets your South African accent uh, coming out. I mean, I think that's, he, that's he, right. I think he moved to Florida when he was like six. I, I, yeah, I don't. I think he moved to Florida when he was like six. So I don't think he really has any South African accent at all. Um, Probably not. But, but I is, think but his, his parents, Glyn and Ilana, certainly do. Yeah, he is the Vikings place kicker. Um, he will be kicking field goals and kickoffs for the Vikings, I guess. I, I assume he's doing kickoffs as well. I think um, so. 
Yeah, um, and probably, he's a guy probably, you might hear about. I mean, the the Vikings are probably going to be better this year than than people think. They're, they should be okay. I think so. Like he had a pretty good, pretty good uh, uh, season last year. Eighty three percent, you know, uh, uh, field goals. Um, you know, he didn't get into that many games, but he looks like he'll get into a bunch more. Kicked off a lot, made a lot of extra points last year. Um, yeah, I think we can expect to see a lot of a lot of Greg Joseph this year. Um, Definitely. And, and, you know, uh, he's also sort of a, a very, very proud Jew, um, you know, went to day school um, yeah. growing up and growing up in Miami or just outside of Miami and Boca. Um, and, you know, as any, every good Jewish boy uh, has been, has been going back to school during the off seasons to get his MBA. You know, you yeah. got to have a backup. You got it. You got it. You got to have a backup. And one of the other uh, one of the other Jewish stars of the league that we wanted to talk about uh, sticking in the NFC North is uh, Green Bay Packers running back AJ Dillon. AJ um, Dillon, uh, BBYO, uh, uh, what do we call it? Guest speaker uh, <laughs> AJ Dillon. There's a great video of him at the BB, big BBYO conference. Um, Absolutely, he, he is technically second on the depth chart behind Aaron Jones. Um, but I think this year is probably going to be more of a, 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 you know, a share, um, like probably gonna be more of a timeshare. I think AJ Dillon, like he is a sleeper fantasy guy for a lot of, a lot of people. Um, he, like, I think there's an acknowledgement that, you know, he is blocked by Aaron Jones right now, but he's like the number one handcuff in fantasy. If Aaron Jones gets, gets injured, oh, AJ Dillon's going to slot in as like a top five running back every year. Um, if, if fantasy football is your thing, so you know he's definitely someone to watch in your draft. If you if you are at a fantasy football draft, feel free to pick him and say you know he's Jewish. And you know, uh, people will be impressed by that. Yeah, he's not, not only is he. I mean, he was he was a much surprisingly, and I say surprisingly because you know Jews of color sort of uh, are are not necessarily seen in professional football, but not only that, sure. he grew up like relatively religious. You know, he went to Hebrew school, he went to synagogue, like he was. He is a, a Jewish man who has had a lot of Jewish experience in his life um, yeah. and, and is quite proud of it. Um, speaking of BBYO and, and, you know, all over Wisconsin, talking about his experience being, you know, welcomed as a Jew of color. So we're very proud of him and happy to see him. And, and like you said, one of the budding stars of the league. Um, I think this is going to be his breakout year. I think he's going to become a real household name in football. And, uh, you know, we're going to see him step up and, and really kick some ass in, in Green Bay this year. I think um, hopefully, hopefully, hopefully more than six, hopefully gets a lot of pitches from Aaron Rodgers and is able to stay at least six feet apart from him. But, uh, <laughs> you know, sometimes that's true. Sometimes you get closer handoff. Yeah. I wonder if AJ Dillon's parents are worried that he is an unvaccinated colleague. Yeah. Um, they're just <laughs> not a thing they would do be unvaccinated. So, right. so they're worried about being an unvaccinated uh, colleague. I think whether there's three more um, Jews in the NFL, there's Sam Sloman. Who's a kicker? Uh, Sam Sloman is a great name, by the way. Sounds like a character in like a Philip Roth novel. Um, yeah, that's you know, good. I've got my buddy Sam Sloman. Um, he's a, a kicker for the Steelers. Um, he's on the practice squad now, but um, with any luck, he'll make the team. He's been re-signed on their practice squad for two years, um, mm-hmm. and he's still on it. Um, they're on the reserve squad, I should say, um, as well as uh, the uh, an OT for the uh, uh, Seattle Seahawks. Juice seem to be represented in the tackle game. Um, Jake mm-hmm. Curran uh, or Curhan, I believe it's pronounced Curran. Um, grew up in San Francisco. Another proud Jew um, who also got, also has his MBA. Got to have a backup, um, and his from from Cal from Berkeley. So pretty good schools these these Jewish boys go to. 
Yeah, and Michael Dunn, the uh, guard for the Cleveland Browns, uh, also Jewish. So uh, definitely, guys, we'll we'll continue to check in on. You know, it's it's tricky with um, it's yeah, tricky with non. We can give you guys. Yeah, exactly. It's tricky with players. non-position players. It's it's tricky with non-position players. You can just be like, well, this guard and and you know this guard played last week. That's what we can say. And let me say, I'm not putting down the you know incredibly difficult work that guards and tackles and all kinds of other players in football uh, like the incredibly difficult role they have. But it's just hard to say, like, I mean, they stood a guy up or they let up a sack or, you know, yeah. there are advanced I mean, stats think, about it. But it's it's different it's, it's different than saying, like, well, A.J. Dillon scored two touchdowns last week. No, if that of happens, course that's, that's a nice thing to announce. But we could absolutely say, like, you know, uh, uh, Drew Locke didn't get sacked today. So good work, Jake. Like, muzzle tough Jake. No sacks for right. Drew Locke. Right. Uh, uh, just a little harder to quantify. Just a little harder to quantify, but yeah. you're right. With with Sam Sloman and Greg Joseph, we'll know exactly how many kicks they make and how how from far away. Yeah. Uh, well, we'll leave it there for now with uh, football. Obviously, we'll keep that in mind in the next few months uh, as the season develops. And uh, why don't we go now to our interview with Alan Leibel? Well, we're very glad today to be joined by Alan Leibel. Uh, a Toronto area lawyer and also a three-time member of Canada's Olympic team. Hi, Alan. How are you? Uh, great. Thanks for having me, guys. Good to meet you both. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the Menchwarmers. Thanks so much for joining us. We, we wanted to have you on, uh, especially now because we're coming up uh, on the 50th anniversary of the Munich Massacre, um, which occurred on September 5th, September 6th, 1972. Um, and we wanted to talk to somebody who was there. Uh, Alan, we know that you were part of the, the Canada's uh, Olympic sailing team at that time in Munich. Um, so we just wanted to talk to you a little bit about your experience of what happened, your uh, you know, recollections of the of the days around the events, and uh, take it from there. Um, sure. Um, just to put it in context, in terms of my Olympic experience and how it was affected by Munich, um, I was on the uh, Canadian Olympic team in '72, which is when the Munich massacre occurred. Then again, in 1976, when it was in Montreal, and then uh, I was on the Olympic team for 1980, which was to be held in Russia. In the end, Canada and the U.S. and a few other Western countries boycotted those Olympics. And it, all, it, it was all one change of a lot of politics involved in not nearly as much sport, which was a shame. But uh, so going back to 1972, um, the, it's interesting to note that the previous time that, the, that Germany hosted the Olympic Games was in 1936. And that uh, Olympic Games in Germany was presided over, quite conspicuously presided over by Adolf Hitler. He was front and center at those Olympics. And you have to remember, that was before World War II. That was before uh, the Holocaust. And that was before the creation of the State of Israel. And then the next Olympics, which we're now talking about, was in 1972. And by then, of course, the world, the the war was over. The Holocaust was a great tragedy. And most importantly, the state of Israel had been created. And that sets the stage for the 72 Olympics, where Germany was again the host. And Germany was out, understandably, to demonstrate to the world that um, they were now a friendly country. And this was going to be a friendly celebration of sport. And frankly, they, they put... They went out of their way to create that atmosphere. And it was in the context of that 
and in the context, therefore, of a very low amount of security that the massacre occurred. Um, and I guess you two guys are too young to have uh, been around when it occurred. But um, in 1972, the Olympics were in September. Uh, they were, it was about a 10-day event. And on about the fifth day, to everybody's incredible surprise, the Israeli athletic area, which was part of a compound in the, in the Olympic village, was raided by terrorists. And there were 11 Israeli hostages taken. They were kept in their own apartment, um, captured by the terrorists. I must tell you, when news first spread of what was happening, a lot of people thought it was a joke, that it wasn't really happening or there were people playing a bit of a hoax. And, and was this, this is you in the village, weren't sure what was actually going on? Uh, well, just to clarify, there were several different villages uh, rearranged around the Olympic facilities. I was in a different village. But yes, there, there was no way for us to know what was happening except in the news. And um, interestingly, and I guess deliberately, the terrorists had chosen the Olympics and chosen Munich because the eyes of the world, and more importantly, the cameras of the world, were already trained on the Olympic facilities in the Olympic Village. So suddenly, we're all um, watching television. That's where we saw it all, just as everyone in the world was watching it, because the cameras were now trained instead of on the, on the track and field events. They were trained on this uh, apartment complex where there were guards with rifles all over the place. Um, and as I said, um, many of us thought that they were just kidding until the terrorists threw one of the Israeli athletes' body, dead body, out into the corridor. And then everybody suddenly realized this was real. So um, the cameras were trained on it uh, for approximately, I think, 48 hours. Uh, everybody was praying that there would be some sort of peaceful resolution of this. There apparently was some negotiation going on between the German officials and the terrorists. And ultimately, a so-called uh, arrangement was made whereby the terrorists and the Israeli hostages would be put in a bus, taken to the airport, and then flown out of the country to a destination that was not clear, but it was in the Middle East somewhere. Um, the German officials had a plan to try to liberate the hostages. And they waited until the hostages were loaded onto this plane, along with some of the terrorists. I guess most of the terrorists were on, on that plane. And suddenly the German officials broke through with guns, trying to save and rescue the hostages. But it did not work and resulted in the terrorists simply killing, shooting all of the Israelis on the plane. Most of the terrorists themselves were killed by the German officials, and three were taken into custody, kept in jail, and as I understand it, ultimately were released back to their home country as part of a prisoner trade. So, I mean, that's, that's what physically occurred. That's what the movies all show. That's what the history books all show. 
it was a terrible, terrible event. Um, I can tell you that once it was over, of course, no one knew how it was going to end until it ended, it ended quite suddenly. But once it was over, there was a question, what should the Olympic officials do? Should they cancel the rest of the Olympics? And there was some support for that. Or should they continue? And I think the prevailing sentiment, um, I believe supported by the state of Israel, was that if we cancel the Olympics, the terrorists win. And therefore, it had to go on. So there was another two or three days of mourning, even in the Olympic villages. And then they competed. They completed the Olympic Games. And and. Just to jump in here, what do you think? You know, as an athlete, what it, both at the games at the time, did you think the game should go on? And now sort of as, a, as someone who's lived a lot more of life, been to a different Olympics, how do you look upon that decision today? I'll tell you that at the time, it would not have disturbed me if they'd simply canceled the whole thing. It would not have bothered me in the least. I had gone home. I'd have been full of grief like everybody else was. Because at that point, it was no longer about the Olympics. It was about a terrorist attack, about 11 dead Israelis, uh, Israeli athletes. And to me, the Olympics were kind of meaningless at that point. But I do understand why there was a feeling that they, they can't let terrorism rule the world. They got to demonstrate that terrorism doesn't work, that life will continue despite what some terrorists might do. So I understand that sentiment as well. And that's the decision that was made. And I accepted it too. A lot has been made in, in the years since then of the uh, unpreparedness from the German officials and the, and the German, uh, you know, Olympic organizers in terms of security, especially. Was there any feeling uh, a relation to that in advance of the, of the, of the hostage taking? Like, among Olympic athletes, was there any feeling of, you know, this is not being run properly or, or things are too loose? Or, or did that only become apparent afterwards? Yeah, um, there was no such feeling. I mean, no one even gave a thought to security. We were in Germany. It was a beautiful, renewed country. And uh, it was supposed to be a friendly Olympics. And it was. And it was wide open. And um, you ask a great question. But in hindsight, you know, um, Things were done differently, and that's why I make mention of the of the next Olympics, which was seventy six. Security was incredibly tight in the seventy six Olympics, just to avoid to try to avoid any such thing. But to answer your question, no, there was no thought of it at the time. And I, I take well, it that made it. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I assume that made things feel differently uh, by the time Montreal rolled around um, in seventy six. That things were more closed off or that things there was more security, more checkpoints, things like that. Well, I can tell you exactly. The, uh, uh, the, Olympic, the Olympic residences were all heavily guarded. You'd get on a bus to go from the residence to, um, to your sport venue, and it would be heavily guarded and policed. You guys will laugh, but even out on the race course where I was, the sailing race course, the Coast Guard had created a circle of about a two-mile uh, diameter, uh, and no boats, no non-competing boats were allowed in the circle by police. Wow. So, well, yeah, I the think, security was awesome. I, I think understandably, I mean, obviously, the, the 
tenor of the Olympics sort of changed, I think, after Munich in, in a real way in terms of, you know, what it needed to be or um, the protection. But uh, alongside that, you know, aside from the security at the Games particularly, ha- ha- do you have an opinion or do you have a feeling of how um, the Olympic movement or the IOC has sort of treated Munich, how it's uh, honored the victims of, the, uh, of, of Munich in the years since? You know, we've we've heard a lot of criticism from the, some of the, the survivors um or, or the surviving widows and and uh, children of the people who were killed in Munich about their their sort of uh, feeling that the you know the Olympics just wants to sort of bury it and not really talk about it. Is that something that you've experienced as someone who's sort of a, a, an Olympic uh, alumnus? Um, I've heard the criticism, and I you know I will forever feel badly for the families of those who were killed. I I. It, it's not up to me to, I, I guess I just don't know the answer to your question as to whether there's been enough honor given to those people. I know, for example, um, oh, about 15 or 20 years ago, uh, because my son was competing in basketball, I attended the Maccabea, uh Games in Buenos Aires. And there, there was an immense tribute to those Israeli athletes, and it was really heart-wrenching. I remember being at one of the opening ceremonies and uh, the, the whole place was in tears. So I can understand that there was a, there, in, there continues to be a real uh, feeling of sorrow and grief, and it's not going to be erased. And yes, I've heard people criticize that the uh, IOC has not properly remembered the event. I've heard the, the criticism. It's, I, I don't know that I share it, but I don't criticize it either. Uh, Alan, tur- turning a little bit to your own uh, personal history, can we, can we talk a little bit about how, how did you get involved with sailing uh, to, to the point where you were able to compete for Canada at an Olympic level? Well, were, I, were you a camp guy? Uh, Please tell me it was camp. No, it was anything but camp. Um, my family rented a cottage up at Lake Simcoe. My father had an eight-foot rowboat. He managed to put a sail on the centerboard and a rudder on it. And as a little kid, I sailed endlessly. And I had no idea what was happening, but I guess I was learning to sail pretty fast with, without even a thought about it. And um, um, I was invited when I was in college to steer one of the boats that my buddies had. It happened to be an Olympic class. We didn't have any thought of Olympics. I sailed it for a couple of weeks. Um, we did well enough that we continued. And two years later, we won the trials. The boat was on a Hercules jet over to Germany. And that's how it got started. Just as simple as that. But sorry, it wasn't camp. It was just hanging out in a little rowboat. I mean, that's that's an amazing story. And uh, where did you go to school? Also in Canada? Oh, yeah. I've always lived in Toronto. I've always lived in Toronto. I I love that story. But it it really speaks to a different time uh, of amateur sport. And now I assume whoever is going to, you know, or most people going to represent Canada in sailing, you know, have been sailing at a, you know, high level and on the the right discipline boats and with coaches for a long time and all that, as opposed to you, it, it sounds like just tooling around in a rowboat <laughs> on well, the in the summertime. Yeah, it has changed dramatically over over the years, and and you've you've characterized the change pretty well. Um, when I went, when I was doing my Olympic campaigns, I was either a student or a lawyer. Well, nobody could do that today. In fact, right. the government, the, the Canadian officials wouldn't even let you try out for the team if you were trying to do that. But in those days, with a lot of discipline, I was able to do both. Uh, again, you wouldn't do it today. And the other thing was, most of my training was done on a sailboat. Today, 
the young sailors, most of their training is done in the gym. Very, and that's because of a change in the type of boats and that sort of thing. And also the whole element of professionalism has changed. Uh, uh, I was aiming to be a lawyer. Any, most Olympic sailors today are aiming to be professional sailors. And as, as we talk about Olympics today, you know, your, your Olympic experience several decades ago, obviously the sports have changed, the games have changed, the experience has changed. Do you still follow the Olympics? I, I certainly do. Um, I just find it fabulous to watch and I enjoy keeping tabs on the results. But yeah, I, th- I think the Olympic movement is still very much alive. And if, it, if it's treated well, I think it's, it's generally for, for the, the, the good of the world. I think, it's, I think it's horribly abused because it's such a, because there's so much focus on it, it is so easy to use it for, um, purposes having nothing to do with sport. And as right. I mentioned, the, the 1980 Olympics were boycotted by us for such an ironic reason. When you think of it, it was because Russia invaded Afghanistan. <laughs> and then 20 years later, the U.S. invaded Afghanistan. But, you know, things were different. And then that the boycott in 1980 led to a further boycott in 1984, where the Eastern Bloc country said, well, if you wouldn't come to our games in 80, we're not coming to your games in 84 in Los Angeles. It, I and think it goes to show you. Yeah. I think it goes to show you a little bit. You know, we talk about the intersection of sports and politics a lot, but people have been having this debate for at least 50 years, if not more where sports and politics intersect. And, and unfortunately, they, it can lead to, to murders and deaths. And, and that's a, it's not a new problem. It's certainly not a new problem. But I think that um, leaving out the terrorist attacks, I think trying to use the athletes. Remember, these athletes train for four years, eight years or more for this one thing. And using them as pawns is just... It, it really is ridiculous, and especially because it's done so often. And wait till the next Olympics with Russia involved. Who knows what they're going to do with that? Right. Um, in in the years uh, since your Olympic career, have you kept up with sailing? Have you continued to be involved with sailing uh, at any level or continued sailing personally? I am 100% still involved in sailing. I still compete. I competed this weekend. Obviously, the, the nature of the sailing has to change given age and things like that. But <laughs> I love the sport. And I'll just keep doing it. Absolutely. And I'm a better technical sailor than I was back then. I'm not as athletic, obviously. Right. I mean, I guess, you know, it's interesting in the, in the Toronto context, sailing has this um, sort of veneer as a, as a, originally a sort of Jews excluded activity. But of course, I mean, the Island Yacht Club has been, you know, was started more than 70 years ago. So there's always been a sort of inclusive uh, Jewish sailing contingent as well. Uh, that's, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm assuming continuing to thrive with lots of young Jewish sailors out there. Uh, first of all, your conclusion is correct. There's a lot of good young Jewish sailors out there. The Island Yacht Club uh, was established back, as you said, I think about 70 years ago, um, because, as I understand it, uh, Jews were not welcomed in other clubs. That has changed dramatically. Right. And there are I, I belong to several yacht clubs in Toronto, and not and one of them is not the Island Yacht Club, as a matter of fact. Um, so you, you wouldn't belong to any club that would have you as a member. I have That's the most Jewish that. thing you could have done. That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, That's uh, good to hear. I want to ask you as well, you know, something we ask with every athlete we talk to, either when you were in the Olympics in 72 or 76 or now, do you pay attention to who's Jewish? 
if it, if it happens to be publicized, I would pay attention. I mean, back in uh, 72, you guys wouldn't remember this, obviously, uh, Mark Spitz. Never heard um, of him. No, no idea who that is. I've never heard of him. So Mark <laughs> Spitz won seven gold medals in swimming in 72, and he made no secret of his religion. So and and it's something you have a brotherhood with him, both the 72 Olympics and, and being Jewish, and you always will. Well, I actually had the honor of uh, being a co-speaker with him at a Jewish fundraising event not long ago, maybe 10 years ago. He's, he's a really interesting character. Definitely. And uh, uh, you can understand how a guy like that would have been so committed to winning because right. he thought about nothing other than winning. And well, maybe that's it's the same it, 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 it's interesting, you know, I don't know what it what it means necessarily, but it is interesting that 72 is marked by those two sort of um, significant events in Jewish history, obviously the massacre and also Mark Spitz's, you know, dominant performance and what was the most dominant Olympic performance ever and, and for the next right. 30 odd years afterwards until Phelps. Um, so I, I don't know. There's some there's some commentary to be made a, a, about intertwining those, you know, uh, moments triumph of, and of, tragedy. Of triumph, triumph and tragedy. But uh, I suppose, I suppose. But even Mark admitted that uh, the tragedy uh, certainly overweighed his victories. Right. Well, Alan, uh, I think we should wrap it up there. We want to thank you again so much for, for joining us. It's been uh, a true honor having you as a guest. Uh, always great to have an Olympian on uh, and someone who's represented their country so well. So thanks again for, for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Well, thanks again to Alan for joining us. Uh, very informative and interesting to hear his perspective on being an athlete uh, at the 1972 Munich Olympics. And we should say that just earlier today, uh, the survivors, the the widows and, and children um, of the uh, the 11 Israeli athletes who were killed as hostages struck a deal with the German government uh, for damages in relation to uh, their, their, their loved ones, their family members being killed. Um, they agreed to a, a 28 million euro uh, payment. There had been a significant great. disagreement about the the you know the nature of the deal, um, but it was just struck. You know, we're, we're you know four or five days away from the 50th anniversary, so that's great. That's real. You know, just breaking news. Uh, we're not breaking it, obviously, but it's <laughs> it's just been recently reported uh, as we're recording this earlier today. So that is great to hear. Um, very nice that those families will get that compensation, uh, and I think the, you know the majority of it will be used to continue to. Uh, fight for justice here and and to you know publicize the nature of this event and uh, and the sort of legacy that it, that it carries with those people that's absolutely a, a very good news and and you know there's been a sort of a I don't know if it's a long history but reparations are hard to come by and when they come it's it's usually good yeah so that's uh, I, I suppose a bittersweet but a, a good note to uh, end things on in our in our look back at the 1972. Munich Olympics and uh, Munich Massacre. I think um, so too. Any other? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yes. Any other stories for uh, uh, the next week before we say goodbye? Uh, just wanted to, to mention that uh, Sue Bird's uh, Seattle Storm are, are in the WNBA playoffs still. They're I, I think they're up a game. They're up a game uh, on Las as, Vegas as right um, yeah. in the semifinals. In the semis, thing. Yeah. Um, Vegas is the number one seed and, and fav- certainly favored to win. Um, win the championship but, and a longtime rival of, of Seattle. So it'll be a great Seattle series. Seattle is a but, shot. 
yeah. Seattle's absolutely got a shot. You know, Sue's last year to go out with her fifth ring. That would be pretty cool. Yeah, Sue's last dance. Um, as always, we're, we're, we're brought to you by uh, the Canadian Jewish News. Uh, you can find all Canadian Jewish News content, including our suite of podcasts at the cjn.ca. Um, if anyone has good insight into uh, a new cream cheese alternative for those of us in the uh, greater Toronto area, uh, feel free to drop us a line. Um, you can reach us at Menchwarmers on Twitter. Um, and you should like and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get it. Uh, then it will be delivered right to you uh, in your podcast feed. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. And please tell your friends about this show.